You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is James Conroy, a best-selling historian. I've actually read three of his books now. They are all wonderful. James is the author of The Devils Will Get No Rest, FDR, Churchill, and the Plan That Won the War. Mr. Conroy, thank you so much for coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Oh, it's my great pleasure. I appreciate being here. Well, you, you, we were talking before we started about you uh, being a generalist, but for World War II, you definitely filled in a significant gap with regard to war planning structure. Not only the interdependence, but the interpersonal relationships uh, among all the attendees at the Casablanca conference. Uh, before we get started, just uh, questions about the conference itself. Why did you choose this particular event to chronicle? Well, uh, two reasons, really. One, um, I've written four books, and all four have been deliberately chosen because no other book had been written on the subject. And uh, it's difficult to find uh, such things that are interesting (laughs) and haven't been beaten to death. And uh, no book had been written about the Casablanca Conference, uh, no full-length book. Uh, And secondly, um, I just happened to be uh, watching a uh, History Channel documentary years ago and, uh, you know, on the Casablanca Conference. Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me at the time that having FDR, Churchill, de Gaulle, Eisenhower, Patton, uh, George C. Marshall, uh, Lord Louis Mountbatten, and half a dozen other 
huge personalities <laughs> in one place for 10 days surrounded by barbed wire in a war zone has got to be an interesting story. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's where I went with it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you, I've written down to ask you about specific characters, but the conference system, did it replace the Congress system that was implemented in Europe after the defeat of Napoleon? In other words, did the conference mindset get influenced by what had happened previous Washington Naval Treaty and all these sorts of things where, hey, we can come together and work together to make our plan come to fruition. I think uh, I don't think so. I think it was really an organic uh, development, if you will, because, uh, you know, immediately after Pearl Harbor, the first thing Churchill did was get on a battleship and bring his high command to Washington uh, to make sure that uh, that alliance was nailed down and to try to influence it as best he could. And um, I believe I could be wrong, but I think that the what we would today call a summit conference yeah. uh, was a, a rarity at, at, at best in those days. And there were a half a dozen or more uh, such summit conferences uh, during the war uh, among the, the Anglo-American allies. And uh, this, uh, this Churchill called this the most important of, the, of them all. Um, so I, I think it was kind of sui generis. It just came out of the situation that they were in. The Casablanca conference occurs in January of 1943. Correct. Please tell the leaders and leaders and legends audience what's going on in the war in World War II while this conference is happening. The the overall broader scope because there are some significant conflicts and battles that are happening while these leaders are meeting. Sure. Uh, well, first of all. Um, it was just over three years into the war for the, from the British point of view and a, a year and, and two months from the American point of view uh, into the war. And it had been nothing but defeat uh, for the Allies, with the sole exception of the Battle of Britain, which was a defensive battle. You know, they held off uh, the Germans from invading Britain barely. And uh, beyond that, they had just suffered defeat after defeat. Um, in, in the Pacific, the Americans had won the Battle of Coral Sea and the Battle of Midway, which turned the tide, you know, against Japan in the spring of 1942. But, it, uh, but uh, in Europe, uh, the Germans had just dominated. And um, what had occurred just before the Casablanca Conference uh, in uh, the fall of 1942 was the successful uh, taking of North Africa uh, by the Allies from the French, um, um, counterintuitively enough. Um, and, uh, and that was linked with uh, Montgomery's defeat of uh, Rommel at El Alamein in Egypt, uh, was actually part of the same operation. Montgomery pushed Rommel uh, west from Egypt, and the Americans and the Brits landed in Morocco and Algeria with the object of catching him in a vice between the two of them, and also controlling North Africa, you know, from which to take the next step. And uh, the conference was held, well, I should also say, too, that uh, the, the 
tremendous battle of Stalingrad was was uh, raging uh, while the conference was held. And uh, when the Russians won that battle, uh, you know, the tide really had turned in the European theater. And uh, the the basic purpose of the conference, the Casablanca conference, was for Churchill and FDR and their combined high command to figure out what's next. How are we going to go on the offensive and where are we going to go and how are we going to do it? So it was essentially the turning point of the war from defense to offense uh, on the Allied side. And how did the relationship between leaving the Soviet Union out of it for a bit, the relationship between Great Britain and the United States change because of this conference? Well, that's a very interesting point. And I think it's kind of a theme that runs through the book. Uh, there was a lot of tension between the British and the Americans at this point. Um, mutual distrust, mutual suspicion, uh, culture clash. You know, we we lose sight of the fact that in the 1940s, without TV, without the Internet, without, you know, much of by way of radio, even between the continents, uh, they were much more separate cultures and really civilizations almost than they are <laughs> today. Uh, with very different attitudes, you know, the British were an empire and very Im imperially minded. Uh, the Americans were not really not to any great extent and had a very different worldview. And um, when they came together in a series of conferences before the Casablanca conference, they got to know each other. Um, you know, the the connections and the ties had begun to form, but so had deep, serious disagreements about how to conduct the war and what was more important than something else. And uh, this really gave them 10 days together in a resort hotel that the Americans had commandeered and uh, surrounded with a mile of barbed wire. Um, and uh, they really had to live together, uh, eat together, go to the bar together. Um, there was no home court. It was neither in London nor in Washington. Mm -hmm. And so people couldn't go back to their offices or back to their hotel. And they were thrown together for 10 days. And that really made a big difference. Prior to when you read books about World War II and the Americans' entry into it, clearly Churchill and the Brits were thrilled, for lack of a better term. Like, oh, yeah. what's Churchill say? I slept the sleep of the saved or something like that. Exactly. Right. Uh, but there was an all that I've read, a significant amount of mild bitterness, and maybe those those words can be changed, on the part of the Brits, basically like, where the hell have you been? Mm -hmm. We've been fighting every we've been fighting by ourselves for a year. Now we got Stalin on our side. You're not you don't come into the war until December of 41 and you were pushed into it by the Japanese. How did that is that a fair assessment on behalf of, of the British army and, and government and people? And, and how did they get past it to create war? Uh, that's a perceptive comment. I think that is true. Uh, you know, the Americans were keeping the Brits going, really, with Lend-Lease uh, giving them arms and ships and weapons and uh, to an increasing degree, um, taking on some of the, the uh, naval responsibilities in the Atlantic, 
to keep that that route open, uh, which was a difficult job with the the uh, U-boat infested uh, mm. waters there. So there's no doubt that I don't think there's any doubt that the the Brits could not have hung on as long as they did without that help from the Americans, and they appreciated it and they knew it. But nonetheless, they were the ones out there dying and fighting, and you know, with their country on uh, on, on a an eyelash of uh, survival. And I think there probably was some resentment and some some sort of where, where have you been, as you put it. Whose idea was it to have the conference, not at Casablanca, the location you've already articulated, but just the idea that, hey, we need to get together at the highest level? Yeah, I, I, it, it was essentially FDR's idea. Uh, I, FDR raised the the idea with Churchill, who immediately welcomed it. Um, there was they were friends as well as rivals in a way. Um, they had met um, several times before uh, in the course of the of the war, both before and after the Americans came in. Um, but uh, Churchill immediately uh, signed on for that. They tried to get Stalin to come uh, initially too, uh, but uh, Stalin was uh, you know had his hands full with with <laughs> Stalingrad. <laughs> and uh, was in no place to come. One of the leaps out really on your page, uh, your pages, but other books as well, that Roosevelt and Churchill needed each other. And they clearly warmed to each other. Mm -hmm. But is it fair to say they never completely trusted each other? In other words, the United States is always looking for an advantage. And then, you know, the United States thinking, well, this broken down empire is always looking for an advantage. Is that is that fair? I think that's fair. Um, you know, uh, the um, George Marshall said, actually, after the war, that um, the Americans were always suspicious of the British and uh, kind of looking for signs that they were double dealing them or leading them on or not being straight with them. And Marshall says that the uh, the British didn't feel that way about us because they didn't think we were smart enough or new <laughs> enough to be treacherous. <laughs> which I thought was a great line. Um, but there was there was a good deal of of unease and uh, and and uh, not complete trust between the two of them. Uh, some to more, you know, among some of them more than others, certainly. Mm -hmm. But uh, interestingly enough, Marshall was, was I think, at least neutral about British uh, culture and, and friendships, if not favorable. But Admiral King, the, the chief of naval operations, despised the British and always had for many decades, thought of them as a potential enemy, thought there could be a war with, with, with Britain over commerce and, and naval issues. And um, the second tier of the American leadership were anglophobic. I mean, really beyond mm -hmm. mistrustful. They did not like the Brits. And, um, you know, I think Marshall put it best as far as the other, the other side went that they, the, the Brits kind of didn't think it highly enough of us to be, to be as suspicious of us as we were of them. And that goes back obviously to the revolution, the 1812 mm -hmm. or 1812, and the Great War, which the United States stayed out of until April of 1917, April 6th, I think, is the declaration. A lot of the folks at the conference had fought in World War One, 
or had served one way or the other. They had all served and some of them had fought. Yeah. Did that do anything to help create a spirit of camaraderie is the fact that they had all shed blood before metaphorically? Um, I must have, you know, I don't know from first standard from, from immediate memory of anything in particular, but there's no doubt. I think that it had to have done. Uh, I mean, they knew that we won the war for them. World War one. That is, um, (laughs) if the Americans had not come into that war, it, it, it either would have gone on for a lot longer or the Germans could very well have won. It was the Americans that turned that tide. So, you know, the thing is too, that it's often been said that, um, the saved are often resentful of the savior. Um, people don't like to be saved. <laughs> they like to, I mean, I mean, they're happy to be saved, but they don't like to be in that position. And I think the British had some of that too. I completely agree with that. The idea that, what do they call us? Brother Jonathan? Yeah. Brother Jonathan had to come across and save us. Uh, right. So the twice. Casablanca, twice, yeah. <laughs> Casablanca conference happens in early 1943. We're talking with historian and author James Conroy about his book that's just out. The Devils Will Get No Rest, FDR, Churchill, and the Plan That Won the War. Before we talk about some of the issues, the personalities are always a lot of fun in any books like this when everyone gets together. To me, it was the one thing that struck was was kind of how uh, he appeared to be having just so much fun being the host, and that's General Patton. Mm-hmm. He he pops out in your book quite a bit. What was his role? And he seems a kinder, gentler general than perhaps later in the war? Well, Patton had been in command of the American invasion force that took North Africa um, in the in the fall of 42, which was why he was present, you know, at all. Um, And the, um, you know, the um, Casablanca in Morocco was within his responsibility uh, zone. So he uh, he was uh, charged with the preparations and the logistics and the the lodging and the food and all of that. Um, I think I think I say in the book that he was cast in the unlikely role of cruise director. Uh, (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And uh, we all we all know what Patton was like, Uh, but he was not actually a conferee. He did not sit at the conference table. Um, but he, he sat at the dining table every night with uh, the British and the Americans and uh, played a role of kind of, you know, uh, bringing them together. And uh, they all got a kick out of him. You know, he's quite the character. Um, at one point, he writes home that um, uh, there's a conference going on here and it's all very hush hush and I'm not involved in it. Thank God. Uh, I just want to go out and kill somebody. <laughs> <laughs> the whole notion you talk about the invasion of South Africa, I think that's November of 42. North Africa. Yeah. Yeah. In 42, yeah. And our friend P.E. McAllister, an Indianapolis uh, business titan, was in that invasion. He passed oh, really? a few years ago at the age of 102. But yeah, he yeah. was there. Um, the whole notion of being in North Africa. Africa. Is it fair to say that was somewhat controversial or a point of contention? In other words, the Americans wanted to invade Western Europe as soon as possible. And the British were like, you are not even close to being ready to take on the German army. Right. 
exactly that. Uh, in the preliminary conferences that preceded Casablanca, um, the Americans wanted to cross the channel as quickly as possible. You know, kind of in the in the Ulysses S. Grant mode, mm -hmm. you know, hit them where they are and hit them hard until they stop struggling. Mm -hmm. um, and they were just cocky Americans who thought they could pull that off. And uh, the Brits had crossed the channel before and uh, <laughs> did twice well <laughs> there and back. Right. And uh, in, including uh, General uh, Lieutenant General uh, Sir Alan Brooke, who's a I think kind of the star of the book, actually. He's not a, a household name, uh, not only here, but even in Britain, but he was the chief of the Imperial General Staff uh, of the British Army, the, the chief of staff, essentially, of the British Army. And um, he had um, he, he had been uh, the, the principal advocate for a Mediterranean strategy to uh, nibble around the edges of the Germans and weaken them and open the Mediterranean to uh, maritime traffic. And then over time, uh, build strength and diminish German capabilities until the time was right to cross the channel and attack them, which is the strategy that was eventually adopted. And uh, I'm I, I'm convinced that uh, it would have been a catastrophe had they had they done what the Americans wanted to do. They just weren't ready for it. And Brooks diaries are just a gold mine for they are great historians yeah. and he, he he certainly doesn't doesn't hold anything back to say the least no he he's a fascinating character he uh his his uh surreptitious nickname among his subordinates was colonel shrapnel he was just uh a, a, a very aggressive very uh uh you know difficult character demanding very tough taskmaster uh but also uh an artist um, a wildlife photographer, uh, an ornithologist, uh, wrote his mother these beautifully illustrated letters. He was a complicated guy and a very interesting guy. Um, and I, I don't know, if, but, but for him, if the war would have been won. Uh, Montgomery actually called him the greatest uh, soldier, sailor, or airman that either side produced in World War II. And he's really an unsung hero. Let's hope... Uh... Fleet Admiral Ernest King uh, wasn't with an earshot uh, that Amer <laughs> that American might have lost his top as he often did. Um, yeah. This is. Is it fair to say this is the conference where the leadership, if not in full bloom, but in its in its embryonic stage, the leadership of Dwight Eisenhower comes into view? He had a rough briefing, and if I recall from your book, he didn't perform very well in front of the group. Then he got another chance. How would you rate Eisenhower's performance at the conference, and how important was the conference for the emergence of Eisenhower to eventually become Supreme Allied Commander? Well, I guess what comes to mind is that I would rate him at the conference the way he rated himself, which was not good. <laughs> yeah, I, he he was relatively inexperienced. He had never been in combat himself. Um, in World War One, he tried to go to go into it, but uh, never got that that opportunity. And uh, as commander, a uh, supreme commander uh, of the European theater, um, the Brits again kind of said, you know, a nice guy from Kansas. Uh, we like him. He's got a nice smile. 
And uh, no one did more than Eisenhower to uh, bring the British and the Americans together. Mm-hmm. You know, he mingled them on his staff. He treated them identically. He didn't tolerate the slightest hint of Anglo-American uh, nastiness. Yeah, didn't and he? Liked- didn't he? Did, forgive me, but you say that nastiness, and I apologize for interrupting. But didn't he send someone home to the United States from Britain because one of his generals? called a fellow or called a, a British general, a British son of a bitch. And Eisenhower said, if you just called him a son of a bitch, everything would have been fine, but you called him a British one. And now you got to go. Yeah. That, well, that that's essentially correct. He said that in general, he said that any officer that he heard referring to a British son of a bitch would be gone the next day. <laughs> if you think he's a son of a bitch, you're entitled to your opinion, but not a British son of a bitch. <laughs> I love that. It's just so classic Eisenhower. Right. But uh, that said, all of that said, that he was he did not perform well at the conference. He had planned uh, an attack on what was left of the German resistance in North Africa and Tunisia. And it was frankly just an amateur uh, plan that that overlooked a lot of very basic logistical problems. And Brooke just took him apart, you know, at, at the conference table. Um, Marshall was furious at him. Um, he was a Marshall protege, Eisenhower was. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a great manager. And even then, he was very political. He knew he had instincts about how to deal with people, how to bring people together and uh, make things happen on a political level. But at that point, he was no military strategist. I'm not sure he ever was really a military strategist. Brooke never thought he was. Brooke no, always right. denigrated his his strategic mind, which I bet, I guess Eisenhower got the last laugh since he beat out Brooke to be in charge of the invasion in 44. Correct. Other personalities there, Charles de Gaulle. Yeah. I can't get a read on how much he's actually hated by folks in history. Mm-hmm. Appears to be considerable, yet his presence was necessary mm-hmm. at the conference, do you think? And how did he eventually outlast his detractors to become basically the head of the French? Well, first of all, before I forget it, uh, Churchill used to call him Joan of Arc. <laughs> <laughs> and not a compliment. No, that he had a stupendous ego, de Gaulle. I mean, beyond... I mean, these are all guys with big egos, as you can imagine. But but uh, de Gaulle was, uh, I think, six five and had a six foot five ego was to go with it <laughs> and just impossible to deal with. Incredibly narcissistic, uh, difficult guy. But on the other hand, he was the symbol in France of resistance. Um, he was a relatively young uh, general when the uh, Germans uh, rolled over the French. Uh, he was one of the very few commanders in that uh, conflict that actually scored some successes and uh, performed very well. And at the end of it, when uh, the French capitulated and basically agreed to be subservient to the Germans in the Vichy government, uh, de Gaulle got on a plane, very small plane, and had himself flown to London in a very cinematic fashion. Um, <laughs> and um you know, uh, went over with Churchill's blessing and basically Churchill backed him as the leader of what was called the Free French, a relatively small uh, uh, contingent of, um, you know, exiles and uh, men that had been evacuated at Dunkirk and a few isolated warships and such. 
not a formidable force, but it was fighting France. It was like the spirit of resistance and uh, got on the BBC uh, frequently broadcast to, to his compatriots. And um, that was a, an essential element of uh, keeping France in a position to resist. So he really was kind of an indispensable character. The last name I'll throw out there is Winston Churchill. Um, clearly, the British had significantly deeper interests in the Mediterranean Sea and that area than the United States did. Why do you rate Churchill as, I don't want to make this question overly broad, how do you rate Churchill as someone trying to balance the preservation of the empire with winning the war with and doing so without making the Americans angry? Yeah, well, Churchill is the indispensable player, I think, in World War II. Um, you know, everybody knows Churchill and, and what a tremendous leader he was and what a inspiring figure he was and all of that, uh, particularly in the darkest days in 1940 when the British were really on the ropes. Um, and I have no doubt at all that Churchill's first, second, and third priority was to win the war. You know, mm -hmm. he knew that it, they had to win the war. I mean, if they hadn't, they would there would be no empire and there would be no no British history. I mean, it literally would have ended British history as an independent country. So that was definitely first and foremost. But that said, he was also an arch imperialist and was always conscious of uh, how things affected the empire and how, you know, uh, the, the importance of keeping the empire together, uh, both during the war and post-war, that, you know, always looking ahead to what happens next after we win this war. So, you know, the interesting contrast, or one of many interesting contrasts in this whole story is FDR, the very liberal anti-imperialist um, with this partnership um, with the very conservative arch-imperialist Winston Churchill. Um, at one point, Churchill uh, wrote to FDR and said uh, something to the effect he was glad to be in the same century with you, which I thought <laughs> was a great line. Um, they recognized each other as monumental historic figures, uh, both indispensable to, to the war, and uh, were definitely friends and mutually admired one another. But there was also tension there and rivalry. And uh, after Casablanca, it actually deteriorated quite a bit. Uh, when, when FDR started cozying up to Stalin more than Churchill, um, but that's another story. Stalin is not present at the Casablanca conference because he is dealing with Stalingrad, as you mentioned, and a hundred right. other battles across the Soviet Union. But his presence is there. And is it is the specter of, of Stalin hanging over the conference with regard to allied priorities specifically? He was beating the hell out of Churchill because England wouldn't invade France and he was desperate for a second front. So right. even though Churchill was there, or excuse me, Stalin wasn't there. How did Stalin's needs, personality, uh, disposition influence what happened at the conference? Well, I'll put it this way. To start from the other end of it, um, the British and the Americans were painfully aware that the survival of the Soviet Union 
uh, and its um, hanging on as a fighting force was crucial to the outcome of the war. If the, you know, the, the largest part of the British, or rather of the German war machine was thrown against the Russians, not against, you know, Western Europe. And uh, had they defeated the Russians and um, driven Stalin out of power and basically not Russia out of the war, the best the Americans and the British could have hoped for, and they were well aware of it, was a stalemate. They could simply not have won the war without the Russians. And so a big part of the conference, even in the absence of Stalin, uh, uh, floated around the idea, what do we need to do to relieve pressure on the Russians? And what's the best way to do that? Um, I don't know that it was Stalin's personality as much as that geopolitical sort of, you know, fact that was dominant. But um you know, Churchill and Brooke had met with Stalin. Um, I can't remember exactly how many months it was before the conference, but uh, in recent memory, and uh, it had not been a a pleasant <laughs> a pleasant encounter. Uh, Stalin was putting great pressure on uh, on the British and the Americans to to do exactly what the Americans wanted to do, which was to invade France and thereby draw a lot of German uh, power. Uh, west and away from him it's often said really that the russians won the war and the anglo-americans helped <laughs> especially with operation Bagration that happens in 44 in concert with the d-day landings um, yeah it just it, it it just has to be tough for a historian let alone um, just a history buff like me to give stalin the credit that he perhaps deserves, given that he's probably the second greatest killer of all time. Yeah, or he's up there, certainly. Yeah. Uh, very evil man and uh, totally ruthless and, uh, you know, as bad as he gets as far as uh, uh, morals and and worldview. But uh, Churchill said, <laughs> Churchill's got so many great lines, but... Mm -hmm. At one point, uh, when when the Russians did invade, or rather, when the Germans did invade uh, uh, Russia, uh, Churchill had been the most anti-communist figure, I think, in in the Western world. And he said at a secret session of Parliament that if uh, the Germans invaded hell, he would find something good to say about Satan. So, uh, <laughs> so he was perfectly fine with cozying up with Stalin. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is historian and author James Conroy. We are discussing his book, The Devils Will Get No Rest, FDR, Churchill, and the Plan That Won the War. We've talked a little bit about personalities. Let's talk issues for the last half of the podcast. What did they come there to decide? And did they accomplish the goals set for the conference? Well, uh, there were essentially two uh, 
dominant issues at the conference and probably half a dozen lesser, although important issues. But the two dominant issues were um, how much of our resources and effort are we going to put into the war against Japan and how much are we going to put into the war against Germany and Italy? Uh, and the second was um, uh, whether or not they would cross the channel as quickly as possible or work their way up through the Mediterranean, as I said earlier, and wear the Germans down, uh, open the Mediterranean uh, to maritime traffic, which was crucial to the to the Brits. Um, uh, and th those were the two dominant issues. Um, and I forgot the second part of your question. The second question is, did they basically accomplish, because I want to get back to the the Pacific theater as it relates to planning and logistics and your friend, Admiral King. Mm -hmm. But did they, would they have called it and do you consider it a successful summit, a successful discussion? Definitely. Um, I think it was crucial to the, if not to the outcome of the war, certainly to the duration of the war and uh, the ultimate success of it. Um, that the you know the to come to the to the bottom line, the decision was made that they would pursue the Mediterranean strategy rather than cross the channel as quickly as possible. And uh, on the other big issue, um, they essentially agreed that, and they always had really, that Germany had to be defeated first because it was by far the more powerful and more dangerous adversary. And after uh, Midway and Coral Sea, it was pretty clear that eventually they would defeat Japan. It was going to be a long, hard slog, very costly in lives and, and resources. But uh, Churchill actually said that once the Germans were defeated, then uh, uh, defeating Japan would just be a matter of time. So they basically agreed with that common principle. But Admiral King, in particular, being the naval guy, and it was a naval war, uh, would really rather have, have gone full bore against Japan and let the British, you know, hold the Germans until Japan was defeated, sort of the opposite of what the Brits wanted. But he he subsumed that, uh, you know, that personal goal um, to the greater good and really understood uh, that Germany really had to go first uh, for those reasons. It became a latent or perhaps at times not so latent threat where Marshall or Admiral Leahy, who was Roosevelt's chief of staff or Admiral King or whomever would say, the hell with this. We're just we'll, we'll, we're going to go to the Pacific that they didn't threaten the Brits with that. But they hinted we've got we can do what we want. And if we want to go turn our eyes wholly to the Pacific or mostly we'll do it. Is it? Did, is that a fair is that a fair way to put it that 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 implied option slash threat was there? Oh yeah, in fact, I would go a step further and say that they did they did explicitly threaten that uh, uh, at a couple of points in the conference. Um, not you know, Marshall later admitted he was bluffing about that. You know, there was just no way they could they could do that if you look at the you know the map of Europe and the map of uh, the South Pacific. Um, they had already checked the Japanese ability to to wage offensive war uh, by 
by midway in the Coral Sea. And um, they were building their power and using it very well indeed. Uh, and they were they knew they were going to beat Japan eventually. But uh, nobody was sure about, about the European war at that point. Uh, the war could have gone either way at that time. Uh, in fact, at one point in the middle of the conference, Brooks said, uh, very simply and pointedly, if we try to defeat Japan first, we shall lose the war. And that's pretty stark. And I think he believed it. Not to come off as a, a completely ridiculous American Homer, uh, but I was in the army. So so let's let's play this Ask this one question. And I asked it of Craig Simons, if you've heard of Craig, the naval historian. Yeah. Britain hung on. It did everything it needed to do to to it could do all all of its natural gifts to lead to victory. What the Soviets did is almost incomprehensible in the tens of millions of deaths, tens of millions of deaths, on top of the fact that Stalin had already killed tens of millions of his own people in previous decades. But the performance of the United States in the war to basically fight two unprecedented wars at the same time, thousands of miles, not only from the United States, but from each other. Mm -hmm. I just can't think of any parallel in history to the performance of the United States in World War II. If there is one, fair. please tell me. No, no, I think that's fair. It's a, it's a stupendous uh, achievement, really. And, uh, you know, what we, uh, what we lack today in this country is, is anything like the unity and determination and um, collective effort that it took to do that. Uh, the Just the war production alone boggles the mind. I, I'm not good with numbers and I can't recite the numbers for you, but uh, the, the sheer numbers of aircraft and ships and you know small arms and tanks, it, it just boggles the mind that the entire industrial capacity almost of the United States went into that war for four years. And um, without it, there's just no doubt of what the outcome would have been. Not to mention the, I think it's, I think the number is somewhere over 300,000 dead that we suffered in that mm -hmm. war. I think it's, um, yeah. um, which is 400,000 400, and some. Yeah, I think that's, that's okay. right. It, somewhere in that ballpark, um, which, as you say, is, is, I mean, any one death is is uh, catastrophic for, for that person, but but it was dwarfed by the the Russian casualties and the German casualties and the Japanese casualties. Um, it's just a, an incredible, incredible uh, achievement, really. One of my favorite quotes about the United States is there's several, and a lot of them come from Europe, whether it's Bismarck saying, "God protects." fools drunks in the united states right uh and uh, or is this yeah i think that's it or that's right yeah i think so and, and the other one is uh british foreign minister foreign secretary gray so i word gray referred to the united states as quote a gigantic boiler there's no limit to the heat it can produce when lit yeah yeah did the Germans or the Japanese ever get that sense? Like, like what, what have we, I mean, the awakened giant is obviously the metaphor, but 
does this start to come through at Casablanca? The United States is war productions up. The draft is going on. The troops are starting to be deployed and fighting specifically in Europe. They're already in the Pacific. They've got the United States has all this money, all this production. We're basically producing almost everything that's needed, especially like trucks and stuff like that for Stalin, which you couldn't get enough of. Mm-hmm. Did that lead to a change in the hierarchy among the allies? And was it fueled by the Casablanca conference where everyone got together and the Brits realized this is starting to become the Americans war? Yes, absolutely. The um, up until this point, up until the about the time of the Casablanca conference, um, well, put it this way, at the time of the Casablanca conference, not a single American soldier had fired a shot in Europe. Uh, and not a single American bomb had fallen on Germany. This was completely the British war up to that point, uh, other than what you just said, the industrial production and the weapons production and the rest. Uh, The Americans had really quite recently begun to bomb military targets in France and Holland, but they had not yet dropped a bomb on Germany. So it was really a British war and a Russian war, I should say, uh, until uh, about this time. And um, uh, everybody could see that that was about to shift, you know, that the Americans were going to get into this war big time in Europe. And um, everybody knew the the weakness of the British um, uh, resources and industrial capacity and all the rest compared to the Americans. So they knew that was coming Uh, It was already beginning to happen. And as time went on, increasingly, you know, it became an American war predominantly in in, uh, Europe. And the Brits were well aware of it. And they could also see beyond the horizon that after the war, they were going to be a hollow shell of what they had been. And the Americans were going to be the dominant power in the West. Is it fair to say the biggest policy statement that emanates from the Casablanca conference is what's known as the Casablanca declaration. You mentioned our friend, uh, Mr. Grant, uh, about 30 minutes ago. What was the Casablanca declaration and why did, or was the demand for unconditional surrender of the Axis powers so important? Well, that's it's a very interesting story, actually, and uh, I spend a good bit of time at, on it in the book. Um, Churchill had discussed with FDR uh, the possibility, and in in both of their opinions, the um, the beneficial effect of making a statement that there would be no outcome in this war other than the unconditional surrender of the Axis powers. That was unprecedented in American history. Uh, Every other war uh, we had fought had one way or another ended up in a kind of a negotiated resolution one way or another. Um, But the uh, driving force behind that was, you know, there's no way we're gonna leave a Nazi government in charge of Germany after this war is over. And there's no way we're gonna leave you know, the imperial warlords in charge of Japan after this war is over, because we'll just come back and do this again in three or four or five years. In so, World War One, when the when the Germans signed the armistice, 
there were no allied isn't that correct me if i'm wrong there was not a single allied soldier in world war one on german territory when the war ended so they never had that experience that's correct and so churchill and fdr had agreed really in fact churchill had gotten his cabinet uh sent a cable from casablanca to his cabinet um getting their approval of this policy um but um what happened was at the end of the conference there was a after they were all done and were about to leave they had a military press conference they called in all the war correspondents in north africa to casablanca they didn't know where they were why they were going there they didn't know that churchill and fdr were there uh and they showed up at the site of the conference and out walks churchill and fdr and de gaulle and another important french general and they were all shocked um and fdr at that conference made this announcement that uh they would that there would be no outcome but the unconditional surrender of the Axis powers. Churchill's head literally snapped around when, when FDR said that, because he had not been expecting it to be announced at that point. And um, there's some confusion or I guess lack of knowledge really about what their intention was as to when they would make that announcement. But FDR just sort of said it and caught Churchill by surprise. And he Churchill had no choice, but they rallied behind that and endorsed it. Um, there was a lot of controversy at the time and ever since about whether that was a good idea or not. Um, the major uh, reason to do it was what I said about certainly we couldn't leave these these uh, evil uh, regimes in power. But on the other hand, there was a thought, well, you know, they're going to fight all the harder if they think there's no other outcome but their total destruction and defeat, number one. And number two, we're going to undermine the possibility of a coup, you know, uh, either in Tokyo or in Berlin. And as I'm sure you know, there there was, in fact, a conspiracy among the German, some of the German uh, senior leadership to kill Hitler, and they tried. Um, and um, the thought was that, uh, you know, that would save a lot of blood and time and effort if uh, that were to happen. But if we say, no, you all have to, you know, give up your arms and lay on the ground and do whatever we feel like doing with you. Uh, There was a lot of controversy about whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. In your mind, did it mean more that those words were spoken, announced by Roosevelt as opposed to having them announced by Churchill? I don't think so because uh, Churchill again had no choice once he heard those words, you know, being said at a press conference to immediately agree and say, yeah, we're we're both on the same uh, page on this. There was really, really had no practical alternative. So, um, you know, they both rallied behind that that policy at that point. We have a few more minutes with author and historian James Conroy. We are discussing his book, The Devils Will Get No Rest, FDR, Churchill, and the Plan That Won the War. We've talked a few minutes ago about how the United States was kind of in the ascendant, for lack of a better term, uh, as it as it relates to the relates to the end of the war from Casablanca on. Are you surprised at how quickly, assuming that two years two years is quick, the war ended 
after Casablanca. There was the Tehran conference. There was the Yalta conference. You know, there were others. But to me, after reading your book, and I confess, I didn't know anything about the Casablanca conference other than the unconditional surrender declaration, um, that the, the, the path to the defeat of the Axis was laid here, the foundation at Casablanca. Yes, uh, uh, that's correct. And uh, there were there were adjustments, as you would expect there would have to be as the war went on. Um, the, the head of the RAF, um, Charles Portal, uh, not a well-known figure, but a brilliant guy. And the Americans thought very highly of him. You know, um, he he, um, he made that point very clear in the conference and um, that, uh, you know, you really nobody can project what you're going to have to do a year from now in a war. There's just too many variables and too many uh, things that are unpredictable. Uh, and so adjustments were made. But this was basically the blueprint that was followed throughout the rest of the war and effectively won the war, as the title says. Ask you a quick question about Sicily. Um, as you said, the invasion of Europe, the cross-channel invasion was pushed off. Do you agree with the decision to invade Sicily and then Italy, just in terms of in the general outlook of the war and how it ended? Well, smarter and uh, more more depthy <laughs> experts than I uh, differ on that point. But uh, I think the weight of opinion is that the right decision was made in taking Sicily because uh, it, if you just look at the map, you can see how it's right in the smack in the middle of the Mediterranean, and it made it possible for them to open the Mediterranean and also made a great jumping off point, you know, into Italy and otherwise. Uh, I think the weight of opinion is that um, it was it was wise to take Sicily and wise to begin fighting up the Italian boot, but they probably spent um, uh, too much time in Italy after that, that uh, there were tremendous casualties and heavily fortified and mountain ranges and very tough German resistance. And I guess the weight of opinion is that um, they um, they shouldn't have fought their way all the way uh, up the boot as they did, that it would have been better to uh, to stop at Rome. If you were a soldier back then for any country, Mr. Conroy, which which front would you have said, no, I don't want to go there? In hmm. other words, some some places were worse than others. Yeah, I think the Russian front takes that prize. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was a brutal, brutal thing. And uh, I don't know of anywhere else. Well, I mean, it was all horrible, certainly. But uh, I think the Russian front would be the last place on your list if you had to choose where you wanted to be <laughs> a soldier in the trenches. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. James Conroy, are you ready? I am. What was your first job? Uh, 16 years old, uh, taking shopping carts out of the parking lot in a supermarket, uh, stocking the shelves, uh, bagging the groceries. That's a, that's a good first job. Yeah. Number two, what was your first concert? You know, I, 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 as best I can reconstruct it, I think I was a, probably a senior in high school. I lived in Stratford, Connecticut, which uh, was the home of uh, a Shakespeare theater uh, mm -hmm. for obvious reasons. And uh, there were concerts held there. And that, this was at the height of the folk music uh, uh, phase. Mm -hmm. 
And I think the first concert I saw was Pete Seeger, uh, one of the founding fathers of the folk music uh, movement. That's I think that's a first we've we've asked this question of a couple hundred people. I don't think I've heard Pete Seeger first. Makes sense, though. Uh, Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Um, fact, uh, fiction or nonfiction, any book at all? You can have one of each since you're giving us so much of your time. Okay. Well, um, uh, on I actually on the fiction end, I would I would say 1984. I think that's a terrific book, George Orwell's, Orwell's 1984, not only for its message but also for its evoking uh, a very weird uh, environment. Uh, so that would be that would be my top. Um, Fiction. Uh, I guess my favorite is Rick Atkinson's uh, trilogy on uh, World War II. I um, I think that's a terrific piece of work. We've heard that more than once that the Atkinson's books are just terrific. Yeah, I, I need to have him on the podcast since his name keeps coming up. I've read a, one of his books, but I can't remember. But he clearly has got the respect of his peers. Yeah. Number four. If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Can I get two of those two? We're easy here. <laughs> we're, we're fun people. Uh, one is entirely personal. I would love to see a videotape of my first date with my wife. That's that's number one. Where'd you take her? <laughs> uh, well, we were in college at the time and we just kind of hung out uh, at uh, the student union. Uh, but I would love to see a videotape of that. Um, but for historical events, I am not a specifically religious person, but I think I'd have to say the Sermon on the Mount. I would really like to see what, you know, what that phenomenon uh, was like. And we have had that answer several times. Have you? Yeah. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, mm -hmm. two hours off the record just to chat, whom would you choose? That's an easy one. Paul McCartney. I think that's a popular answer. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. I, I think he's the greatest living artist and uh, just a fascinating guy and also a very good guy from what I can tell. And I would love to to do that with him. Fair to say he's the most famous person in the world, maybe along Probably. with the Pope and Charles III. Yeah, I would say he's certainly got to be one of the top three or four. Have a favorite Beatles song. Oh, too many, too many. But but if I had to pick one, it would be Penny Lane, I guess. And that's off uh, 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 Magical Mystery Tour, isn't it? That no, I, album, I don't think it ever it was on an album. I think it was just a single. I don't think it ever was on an album, except the compilation albums. I'll have to look. To me, Magical Mystery Tour, that's my favorite Beatles album. Yeah, and yeah. I read an and, uh, mostly because um, I am the Walrus is my favorite song. But I read an article that stated that Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band not only isn't a uh, club band is not only not the Beatles' best album, it's not the Beatles' best album of 1967, which is mind-boggling when you consider it. <laughs> uh, they're, they're in a class up by themselves. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, 
a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today has been James Conroy, author of several terrific books. I've read three of them now, so I need to tackle the fourth and whatever else you're going to have come out. The book is called The Devils Will Get No Rest, FDR, Churchill, and the Plan That Won the War. It's a terrific account. tells you about a whole bunch of things that you probably don't uh, either know or didn't consider about the crucial aspect of this meeting. Thank you so much, James, for coming on the podcast and for writing your books. They're wonderful. Thank you so much, Robert. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.